0: Hi, everybody. This is an interview we recorded a couple of years ago, and it's one of my faves, and I think you'll enjoy it too. It's got so much great information in it that if you haven't seen it, please watch it. If you already saw it, please watch it again, because it's kind of like when you watch a movie, you always see things the second or third or 15th time that you didn't see the first time. So I hope you enjoy this chat and remember to subscribe, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about the interview. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Ask Julie Ryan show. I'm Julie, your host, and I'm so delighted you could join us this week. My intention in doing this show is to provide information, insight, and comfort to people all around the world by helping answer life's unanswerable questions. And boy, do I have a treat for you guys this week. Oh my gosh. One of the most extraordinary women on the planet, in my opinion. You are going to get to meet Suzanne geisman and she is just extraordinary in so many ways. She is a mystic, a medium, and an author of 13 books. Hail, hail. You know, I'm <laughs> like, if I had a palm branch, I'd be, I'd be waving it at you. In her books, audio recordings, classes, and workshops, weekly radio show or one-on-one sessions, Suzanne provides stunning evidence of life after death and shows others how to connect across the veil. Suzanne's a former U.S. Navy commander who served as a commanding officer and aide to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the U.S. military, for those of you that are listening outside of the U.S. and don't know what that is. Suzanne's gift of communication with those on the other side has been recognized as highly credible by noted afterlife researchers, and she brings messages of hope, healing, and love that go straight to the heart. So Suzanne, what a treat to have you on the show this week. Well, Julie, it's just a treat to just sit and chat with you, let alone everybody who's listening. So thank you for this opportunity. You bet. We've been trying to do this. We were just talking before we started recording. We've been trying to do this for months, and everything always unfolds perfectly. And so here we are. First of all, thanks for your service, you know, as as your life in the military. And uh, when you were a kid, did you envision yourself in the military? How'd that come about? I actually did. Uh, My brother is
1: 14 years older than I am, and he joined the Air Force when I was five. So traveling to the bases where he was assigned, seeing his lifestyle of traveling around the world, I just thought that was the coolest lifestyle. And then I became a foreign language major and I thought, you know, I wanna use these languages and I really like that military lifestyle. I'm gonna join the military. And so it was in the back of my mind and then became very focused on it from high school on throughout college. I knew that was gonna be my career and got commissioned right out of college.
0: So how did you pick Navy instead of Air Force and not
1: follow your brother? Well, it's kind of funny. I was going to follow my brother, and the Air Force had filled their quota of women when I went to apply. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, gosh, I've always loved the water. Why not look at the Navy? I've been on boats my whole life. So uh joined the Navy. They they uh, uh, were happy to have me, thank goodness. And the funny thing is, though, there were so few positions for women on ships at that time that I served my entire career ashore. And I'm happy for that. That was the right path for me. Wonderful.
0: Did you come from a military family where your parents in the military was your dad? No, or no not people? at all. It was just my brother's
1: uh, example that I opened up to.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and a little bit about your childhood and what led you. Let's, <laughs> let's see if we can figure out what the foundation was that led you to this extraordinary path well, that you've been on.
1: There was no foundation that I was aware of. And I feel that that is so much a part of my path, Julie, because I had no idea I would be doing this work. I was so focused on the military and playing my flute. I did for a while think I'd be a professional flautist. That was, music was really a passion of mine growing up from age 11 and I somehow was always the first chair flautist, you know, and and so I just, I practiced well, somehow. I played, I practiced my scales all the time, but that discipline, see, that's what's really helped me in my work as a medium, which we'll get to later. But I, I know I used to drive my sister crazy because I was so disciplined, you know. I would practice for a competition and she one day say, came in my bedroom and said, if you play that song one more time, I'm gonna take that flute and you know? <laughs> break it in two or something. But uh, I never saw spirits like many people who are mediums now, they've known their whole life. I was very much focused on material things. Uh, definitely always a bit of an overachiever I bet. I <laughs> yeah. Tell. yeah and uh, I had a very functional family I say that because so many of the readings I do now show dysfunctional families I always knew I was lucky in that regard but it's funny it wasn't the perfect family as much as I love my mom she's passed now I realized it was only when I was gosh well, in, my, in middle age that I realized my parents didn't know how to nurture, yet I knew I was loved. And it's interesting, the difference there. So uh, I guess the other big key about my background is I always had this interest in metaphysics, in the afterlife And then those people called mediums, it wasn't all consuming. It actually was after I joined the Navy. I started reading a few books on the slide about astral travel and out-of-body experiences and mediums and channelers. But I thought it was just an interest. Now I see it was laying a foundation for what was to come. But uh, I know the beauty in this path of mine is that because I had no idea that now people, when they hear you were the aide to the top general in the United States military, you were a commanding officer yourself, they listen when I talk about mediumship. They don't automatically dismiss me as some flake, which is a shame that that's what happens to so many people when they hear the word medium. But uh, my background is far from flaky as it can, <laughs> as they
0: get. Yeah. I relate to that because as a businesswoman and an inventor, same thing. And I learned how to do my—I call them woo-woo skills—being a medical intuitive and medium and psychic and whatever you want to, whatever term you want to call it. And and I find the same thing, that uh, people who have known from the cradle, perhaps, and grown up chanting under crystals in a yerk, maybe get a little bit of a different. Um, look-see initially than perhaps you or I with a a more traditional background and then we go into it but it's all the same thing it's all tapping into source which is interesting I envy those folks
1: who have always had that beautiful right brain opened up and and loving and flowy and peaceful I I, you know I've, I've come to that now but I see it's all perfect for each of us
0: well, and I think we're all born with the ability, it's just learning to awaken it and enhance it. With that's practice. right. Absolutely. So, little children have lots of information that they convey from the spirit world, and, and they're just discounted. Their adults say, Oh, honey, that's just your imagination. That's right. When it's not, you know, they really have someone who's a spirit in their room talking to them, perhaps. And maybe a parent will say, Oh, that's just your imaginary friend. And so they learned to shut it down. It's a matter of reawakening it. All right. So what languages do you speak? Well, I was a Spanish major and I haven't
1: forgotten that at all. I can still speak fluent Spanish. Uh-huh. And in fact, I had a spirit in the reading this week talking to me in Spanish. He didn't need to. And I've had spirits that never spoke English who speak languages that I didn't speak and I still hear them in English. But for, I guess he was playing with me, but he told me You know, I was an abogado and he really was a lawyer. It was just really fun. But fluent Spanish and then I minored in Russian and French and then had German up to college level. I taught myself Italian and Portuguese and Japanese. Yeah, that's it.
0: (laughs) Good heavens, what is that, about eight languages?
1: Seven, I think. My husband says he carries his own Berlitz dictionary with him (laughs) when we go on vacation. It just came very easy, and then you know you get to a certain age, and it's no longer easy, so that ran its course as well.
0: Oh, I love that. Well, I was going to ask you to tell us a little bit about – working in the Pentagon for General Shelton, right? That's who yes, was the that's chairman right. he was at the, chairman. the time. And explain to those who don't know, especially people who are listening from outside of America, what does the chairman of the Joint Chiefs do? What did you do for them? How I'm, okay. I'm starting to think your language proficiency probably was part of the reason why you were chosen. It wasn't at all, but I did get to use it with the general. Really fun one time in, a, in an
1: elevator ride with the head of the Brazilian Armed Forces. It's just the three of us. That general my general and me, and they're looking at each other and the general spoke to the general in Portuguese, spoke to my boss as if he would understand him. And I just stood there and translated for him. Well, actually, you know, it was my Spanish speaking ability was part of the way I was selected for that. It's a really long story. And I won't go into it now, but the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs is the the top ranking officer in the United States military appointed by the president and his principal role is principal advisor to the president. So you have the heads of each of our armed services, Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marines, and they're called the Joint Chiefs. And then you have members of each of the four services who are on what's called the Joint Staff, learning for all the services to work together in case there's an emergency, they need to be able to coordinate their efforts. So the head of the Joint Staff is the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And so he's not only the head of those 1,300 people on the staff, but he heads the meetings when the joint chiefs get together. They make decisions and advise, the chairman advises the president. So that's it in a nutshell. So working at that level was amazing to be able to sit in on readings with the heads of the armed services, to be able to sit in the front of the car while my chairman's in the back seat talking to heads of state. It, It was just, let's say heads of military, no heads of state in the back of the car, but uh, congressmen and senior military members. It was, it was fun. (laughs) And I I got to fly fly on Air Force One with our president. That was a career highlight. Really awesome. Did you go to briefings at the White House with him as well? I accompanied him a couple of times. I did get to step into the situation room in the White House and and the Oval Office, but the president wasn't in there at the time. But um, I did go to uh, top secret hearings on Capitol Hill, and all kinds of top secret hearings in the Pentagon. And the president—I've—I I've was with the president about twelve times, I think, and never got tired of it. It's, there's a there's an energy about that, you know. It doesn't matter who the president is; it doesn't matter your political leanings. When you're with the president, it's that energy of the office that is palpable, and it's really fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I bet. I yeah. bet. I've been in in replicas of the Oval Office, like in the Reagan Library out in California and other yeah. places. And the energy, even in those replicas, is palpable. So I yeah. can't even imagine what it's like. And I love how President Trump always lets people come in and get their pictures taken. And he yeah. says to people, Wait, do you want to get your picture taken in the Oval? Because he knows. I've yeah. heard him talk about people doing that. So yeah. you served under President Bush. That's right. Bush W, right? President yeah. George right. W. The Bush right wonderful i
1: met met all six living presidents you say that and you say well now as a medium i meet the dead ones too (laughs) but i did meet six of them it was really a heady time and yet you know what julie i i'm it doesn't even compare to the sacredness of the work i do now oh my god totally it's apples and oranges but I would take this work. I loved that job. It was such an honor. I was hand, I was asked by the chairman to be his aide. The aide is like his right-hand person. You have to make sure he gets where he needs to be on time, in the right uniform, has everything he needs. Make sure the schedule. He sticks to his schedule. He, that you put when he holds out his hand, you know what he wants put in it. So kind of you need. I needed to be psychic, and um, you need to tell. Other senior generals, I'm sorry, the boss needs to leave now and off you go. And doing this in foreign countries with with kings and queens, it was amazing. But uh, he went through 27 aides in 10 years as a general. He was high maintenance and tough on his aides. And I was his last one until he retired. And he just saw me working in the protocol office down the hall. And he saw the way I... Took the lead on things and anticipated needs. And that's what a general needs in an aide or an admiral. And one day um, he just said, Would you like to be my aide? I need a change. It was a setup from spirit because now, like I said, I wasn't just a Navy commander. I've had this background. And so people say, Wow,
0: let's listen. Thank goodness. Exactly. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. How does an army general pick a Navy commander to be his aide? And, and the thing was not just a Navy commander, a woman with no combat experience.
1: I mean, I was, I have the combat action ribbon from my experiences in uh, Panama during Operation Just Cause, but I didn't, I, I didn't have anything like the general had. And in fact, I'll tell you something. I have to tell this in an upcoming event. My, specialty because they didn't know what to do with women who didn't go to sea or fly in jets at the time they weren't even doing that when i joined in 1982 was called general unrestricted line officer that has the acronym of g-u-r-l so we were saddled with this horrible acronym of being the girls you know, it is hard enough to earn your respect for doing your job well, but then you know, what's your what's your specialty? Well, I'm not GURL. No, <laughs> and yet the general saw past that and saw the potential. Thank goodness, and that to me was the miracle.
0: That that he just wanted somebody that would do the job. And- right. Yeah. And do it well. It it seems yeah. to me like there may have even been times in your life in that job, especially where you felt like you were in a movie. Like Oh, it, without a doubt. With especially
1: those. on 9-11. We were in the last aircraft in U.S. airspace on 9-11. Tell and us about 9-11 and what oof, was going on there, we where were you headed, were headed. Yeah, we were going to we're going to Europe to Budapest that day. But later in the week, he was, the general was going to be knighted by Queen Elizabeth. And it was just a gorgeous day. And uh, we started out over the Atlantic in these special jets that we flew in. And all of a sudden got word about an attack, or no, a, a small airplane that had crashed into the World Trade Center. That's how it came through. And then we found out that it wasn't a small airplane. And the general made this statement, then he said it had only, they knew with all of the intelligence data that had been coming in over years, that something eventually would happen that they couldn't foresee. And he said, this is a terrorist attack. And he said to me, commander, take us back to Washington. And so I went up to the cockpit and said to the pilot, take us back. And he looked at me and he said, ma'am, this flight path is going to take us right over Manhattan. And as we turned around, we were already a couple hours out. I had the headset on like you do right now (laughs) and, uh, heard about the attack on the Pentagon. It happened while I was on the phone with one of the colonels back in our hallway. And, uh, He said, something just happened here. We could feel this big shudder. He said, I got to go. I'll get back to you. And then we heard about the second aircraft in the World Trade Towers. And it was just, that was like being in a movie because we didn't know what we were going to go home to. And all other aircraft in U.S. airspace, including the president's, was grounded before ours. We had fighter planes escorting us so nobody would shoot us down. And we landed at Andrews Air Force Base and had a police escort of multiple uh, motorcycles and police cars escorting. This officer, the general, we needed to get him back to take charge and make decisions. And the streets were deserted. We came up upon the Pentagon. You could see smoke coming out of it. It was surreal. And then to to go see the site of the impact, we started going through the inside, the center of the, the Pentagon. The hallways were dark. You could smell the smoke. I'm hanging onto the belt of the bodyguard, the general's bodyguard in front of me. And I'm like, what are we doing? Why why aren't we outside? And suddenly the bodyguard said, General, I think we should go outside. And we went out to look at the impact site, and I was stepping over jet engine pieces in the grass. It was burned in my mind forever to look at that gaping hole and start to say, you know, there were people sitting there this morning. Why were some people there and not somewhere else? Why... Why do these things in life happen like they do? And that was the the start of the real questioning that started me down this more spiritual path.
0: I know a, a retired Air Force colonel who was in the Pentagon on that day, and the debris came within, I don't remember how many feet, but very close to his office. He was actually the assistant to the Secretary of the Air Force at the time. You probably know him. We can talk about it afterwards. And or you probably knew of him. And and uh I really think that he talking with him, he had PTSD. Oh that. yeah. There's no one no. no and wonder. I think so no. many of those people that day, uh, obviously in the towers, but also in the Pentagon, even if they weren't physically harmed, I still think that the the shock waves from the impact affect I see scar tissue in brains from Mm. people, Mm. you know, who maybe were in combat and weren't hurt themselves physically, but brain wise they have brain injury from those shock waves when a when an explosive goes off and and I, I'm wondering with you not being super spiritual or religious, what helped you get through all of that? I can't even huh. imagine. The, it's one thing to watch it in a movie. It's something else like what you're saying. I'm sure you saw bodies oh, or, and the, or This is parts. The, you this said. is
1: where I see the biggest transformation in me because nothing helped me get through that. Mm-hmm. I had nothing other than the, milit- the Navy motto, suck it up and that doesn't really help you i was really good at not feeling emotions back then so talk about scar tissue emotion wise to to watch uh, i don't go into the details but but i ran away from it by saying to my husband i need to retire we need to live our dreams while we can and but unfortunately i couldn't retire for two more years But in those two years, you know, they issued us gas masks to put in our desk drawer just in case there's another attack. I mean, that's a stressful environment and I couldn't deal with it. I started looking into traditional religion, which I'd never had growing up, thinking that might help. And it didn't help because it just didn't make sense to me. I couldn't believe those things that I was supposed to recite and believe. And so I set that aside and just set my focus on retiring and selling our house and cars and literally sailing on our sailboat up into the sunset. And that's what we did. So I, I ran away.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we do whatever we need to do to get us through it. And, and yeah, for but you I to have, be in the oh. middle of it, I can't even imagine. But the coping tools now
1: are so much better. <laughs>
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I was going to ask, how does a super successful linear thinking naval officer get into a, you know the spiritual realm? Tell us a little bit about the catalyst. We heard about nine eleven, but tell us about yeah. other catalysts that really catapulted you into the mediumship world. And, yeah. That and was, talk, talking with dead people.
1: Well, that's the whole thing. Nine eleven really awakened me to the fact that there there has to be a greater purpose, a reason for these things that happen in life. And I ran away, didn't learn my lesson. So I tell people that the universe has a way of making sure we really understand who we are and why we're here. And sometimes we need a really big wake up call. In retrospect, I now say sometimes, does somebody have to die for us to realize these things? And in my case, they really did. And it was the death of my stepdaughter susan she was 27 and when i say have to die i mean i don't know what else would have awakened me like that did and i would probably still be well i don't have any idea what i would be doing now but i would not be happy i'm not as no it would not be a happy content joy-filled person like i am now uh and that's a strange thing to say isn't it as a result of the catalyst of Susan's death. Mm-hmm. It was her death that so devastated me that that brought about the dark night of the soul that is so many people's catalyst that I just knew she had to still be around in some form and all these books I'd read about mediumship and the afterlife suddenly I had to know is that real? Is she still here? Because I couldn't imagine a world without her spirit in it. She, by the way, was a marine. She definitely followed in Daddy's footsteps, but her own way as a, an enlisted marine, which is hardcore. And she was an outstanding marine. She was a sergeant, and was crossing the flight line reporting for duty one morning, and a bolt of lightning from a storm ten miles away. This came down and struck her she never regained consciousness and she was six months pregnant with our only grandchild so yeah and to see my husband who I adore who I cherish just fall like a sack to the ground sobbing destroyed at the thought of his daughter gone you know that's when you think There has to be more. Is that just grasping for straws or is it the soul saying, now's when the growing really starts? And it did. Well,
0: in such a random, bizarre way for her to die. Oh, yeah. It was her time. It was definitely what we
1: now know are exit points. And I'm telling you, tens of thousands of people, lives have been transformed as a result of her death. Because of the work that I led to, I'm not taking credit for it at all. This is a spirit thing that's just unfolded. I see, I, I get emails every day of gratitude for the daily messages from my guides, which we can talk about later for the difference uh, reading with me as a medium did. But see, I took tie to a medium after Susan died. I waited to find one who wouldn't know anything about us. Didn't I wouldn't give her a last name. I needed to make sure she couldn't Google me because I, I was not going to be hoodwinked. Nobody was going to look us up online first. And the evidence that medium brought through that Susan was right there in that room changed my life in an instant because there was no way she could have known those very personal things. And I suddenly knew mediumship is real yeah
0: and your husband's a naval retired naval officer as well Uh, yeah right me captain destroyer
1: captain and he was all on board too and with my work now because it's all about the evidence the things we couldn't possibly know we're not talking airy fairy oh your loved one is fine they love you so much i see their beautiful light that's beautiful but you better back it up with evidence when you're talking to people who who are very left brain and focused and so that's what I practice. That's what I teach people how to do. Because after that reading, I was all in, you know, I want to tell people this is real. But I still, at that point, I had no idea I would be a medium. Yeah.
0: Right. I had an appointment with somebody this morning on a consult who's an engineering professor in, mm. up in the Boston area. Wow. You can imagine those yeah. schools up there and uh, lost a brother. And the brother gave me several messages, one of which was his youngest daughter. I didn't even know this guy had a daughter. He said, your youngest daughter, and name the daughter, uh, could see me when she was a baby. And she still sees me now, but she won't admit it. And he gasped, <laughs> Suzanne. And, Great. and I said, what? He said, I had a picture of my brother in my car. And my daughter, when she was a baby in her car seat and was just starting to talk, used to point out the window and name my brother's name. And then she'd point to the picture. He said, (laughs) nobody would know that. So I I get that same stuff that you do. And it's so fun and so comforting to the families to be able to give them that kind of information. Along those lines, you've written several books about some of the most well-known mediums out there. And I have to believe that when you approach those projects, that you had a healthy dose of skepticism still, and also, um, you know, combining the spiritual, even if it wasn't upfront that, you know, that little skepticism thing, perhaps maybe helped you in the questions that you asked them and some oh, it was of the funny. things that you went through. That's funny that you're assuming that because
1: I didn't. Uh, not I at, mean, that I, you not at that point were Even though it was just the first one I wrote, The Priest and the Medium about Ann Gaiman was within the first year after all this unfolded. And the skepticism was gone. And I would not have written those books if I didn't thoroughly trust their integrity, their honesty, and their ability. But questions I asked were asked from the viewpoint of a reader who might be skeptical. That's that's and what I was therefore I knew just what to ask to make sure that in the story, there was plenty of evidence that came through. Yeah.
0: Most of us have busy lives and we know that we're not getting the nutrients and the vitamins and the minerals that we need. So I'm always looking for easy ways to ingest them. I found one, it's called beam minerals. And what I find is that most of us don't get enough People, The Priest in the Medium, I love that book. That book is fabulous. I have actually given that book to several priests. Oh, good. Yeah. they love it. Well, what's
1: funny is it is Ann Gaiman's uh, uh, biography, but now people read it and they think it's my biography because my name's on the bottom of the cover as the author. And they say, oh, your husband was a priest? (laughs) Start laughing because he's not at all, priestly And he's saintly, he's not a priest. But uh, Ann Gaiman was one of four mediums in a book by Dr. Gary Schwartz, The Afterlife Experiments. And it's one of the first three books I read after Susan was killed to find out if I could trust that there is an afterlife. And I tried to get a reading with one of each of those four mediums. And three of them were way out of my price range, booked way out too famous, but Ann Gaiman didn't even have a website. Nobody knew about her. And she lived five miles from the house we were moving back into after Susan passed. Oh, wow. But I didn't get a reading with her. She wasn't doing them at the time. She'd stopped doing readings. And I found out that she was teaching classes about the philosophy of spiritualism. Spiritualists are uh, have been talking and teaching about mediumship for over 150 years i think it's 150 years and i'm not a spiritualist but i've studied them and i got in on one of her classes and it was one of the women sitting as a student with me that demonstrated she was seeing spirits and i said you're a medium and she said well kind of sorta and she's the one that did the reading for us but uh forget what your question was. Well, uh, (laughs) my
0: question was, how did you meet them? How did you get in touch with them? So that's how I met Anne. And it's so funny
1: because she, in the class, said, people have been saying for years they want to write my biography. And it wasn't time. But I think it's time now. And Two people beside me said, I'll write your story, Anne. And I kept my hand down because I thought I wouldn't dare be so presumptuous to think she'd let me write her book. And then... I got together with her for some questions for a private lunch and suddenly we were reading each other's minds and I thought she wants me to write her book. I'm not going to ask. And finally I asked her, she said, yeah, you're the one. And it was just awesome. It was an honor. And then her husband is the former Jesuit priest. So it's a really cool love story. And my greatest honor with this, it was published by Hay House, which does wonderful books in this field. And then uh, Janet Nohavik was Anne's next door neighbor. At Lily Dale, the the spiritualist community of mediums, and I wrote her biography after she asked me. The hook with her book is that she's a former Catholic nun, turned I read medium. It. Yeah, it's terrific. Yeah. And then my latest biography of a, another awesome medium is Droplets of God, Mavis Patilla's biography, and she's been one of the most revered mediums in England for 50 years. And I love that these biographies are not just their life story, but you learn about mediumship and you learn about the spirit world. I made sure that it wasn't just their story. This is a book about the phenomenon of medium, mediumship and the afterlife and how real our lives as spirits are.
0: Well, exactly. And back to the Jesuit priest, that's a serious educator. The Jesuits are the, I mean, those guys are hardcore educators yeah. and, and that top of that, title of that book caught my attention right away because I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting because of the, the Jesuit part of the equation. Speaking of mediums in Europe and in England, do you feel that mediums are more well or more readily accepted in England and in other parts of Europe perhaps than in the U.S.? Do you find that? You know, I don't,
1: I can't speak authoritatively about that because I don't have the statistics. My encounter with mediumship in England is through the Spiritualist National Union who heads or is associated with the school where I studied evidential mediumship in England. And so being there, you get the feeling because there are spiritualist churches in so many towns across England, you get the feel that most British are at least aware of spiritualism, but I really can't say categorically how
0: much more into it people are there than here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that school that you referenced, the Arthur Finlay College, right? Mm-hmm. I was reading about it in one of your books and I thought, this sounds like a modern day Hogwarts to me. Uh-huh. And, That's and, what some people call it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but it's the other thing that I thought very was very about it's it. total
0: immersion. Well, I thought it was interesting that in some of the Harry Potter I didn't read the books, but I saw the movies. My son was growing up during that time, and I've been to the Harry Potter amusement park in Los Angeles. A lot of that stuff in there, I said to my son when I was there, who's now grown and married, I said, I've seen some of this stuff. She was channeling you know, all this information and some of the stuff in the Harry Potter movies you talked about in your books about the Arthur Finley school.
1: Well, I don't know how, I'm not sure what analogy you're making because I really haven't read Harry Potter, don't know much about him and I don't really know what goes on at Hogwarts.
0: Yeah. Well, they learn how to be mediums and they learn how to do a lot of this stuff, but tell us about that. That experience for you when you went there, and what is an evidential medium versus a regular medium? Yeah, such a good question. It was a life changing experience. Only one
1: week long. I've gone twice, years apart. But I went with the intention of really trusting that these are people I'm tuning into, and not just data I'm pulling out of the air. Until that point, I hadn't felt the spirits. I had. Uh, in writing Janet Nohavik's biography, she called me to the front of her classroom as I was just researching her in the back of the room. She said, there's a spirit standing here, you can do this too. And I did, I brought through a spirit with incredible evidence on the spot. And it just opened up so much. I said, Janet, I need to study where you studied. I need to go to that Arthur Finley College. So I invested the money and the time to go uh, to England, leaving my husband and all security of, you know, the Navy career was was over by the time I was retired, but it was like, I'm really jumping into something with both feet here. Not sure how this is going to come out. And I saw spirits with my own eye there and I felt them and I've felt them ever since. And it changed me. They're just classes from like nine in the morning till nine at night for six days maybe five, I can't remember now, but it's full immersion in a place where mediums have been studying for decades. So the spirit energy is very strong there. You're with others who hold the same intention. You're doing this all day long. It it was a fabulous experience. And I was a student under Mavis Patilla, who she now says, we're now friends and you're my colleague, but she was my original mentor. And uh, I'm indebted to her and to Janet Nohavik and Uh, the Arthur Finley College itself, because I came home from there and I, I was whispering, I am a medium. You know, I didn't, I just didn't know how to accept that until then I started doing readings for people. And now I just shout it to the world. It's, It's just such
0: a sacred gift. Right. Well, you and I both went through that. I say we, we mustered golden ovary energy, <laughs> golden ovary courage. You know, they talk about brass balls with guys. Women have golden ovary. Oh, golden I never ovaries. heard it. I didn't we know what you were getting at. We have golden ovary courage to be able to let the world know that we have these skill sets because I know when I first started doing it, I was like, people are going to think I am just nuts. And now it's like, you can think whatever you want. Here's what I do. Here's here's who I am. And I know you're the same way. So tell us- I didn't answer your question though about what evidential mediumship is. Oh yeah. Sorry,
1: that's so important. It is when the medium brings through verifiable facts, memories, and things about the spirit they're talking to that they couldn't possibly know that lets you, the person receiving these this evidence, know, oh my gosh, that's my loved one. And then when you get beautiful messages like they love you so much or they tell me they're fine across the veil,
0: then you know you can trust that because it's backed up with the evidence. Thank you for yeah. for letting everybody know what the difference is. So so is there a routine that you follow when you're getting ready to communicate with spirit? What's what's what do you do it let's say I came to you and I wanted to talk to my maternal grandmother who died in 2002. What happens? First, I know that I have to set a very clear intention. And just the fact that we set up an
1: appointment, that's our intention. And I also leave it open enough that we open up to anybody besides grandma who's passed. And I teach a method, it's actually free on my website under Free Meditation Gifts, and it's also on YouTube, Seven Steps to Connecting with Higher Consciousness. I go through those seven steps almost every morning to expand my consciousness, raise my vibration, and merge with those in the spirit world in consciousness. So it's a, it's a method that's also known as building the power, just raise our vibration and our aura so those in the spirit world see us and know we're ready to work. And so when I sit, I used to have a big ritual, but I don't anymore. I've taken off the training wheels. And it's funny when I teach people who've been mediums for a while, I say, what do you have to do to get ready to do a reading? And they talk about all these things. And I said, you know, what you really need to realize is this is a natural ability. The spirits are right here and you just tune into them. So it's the preparatory work that happens in the daily meditative practice. And then it's the intention. And I just take a few moments to open my heart to connect with the person who is sitting with me, even if it's on a computer like we are now, to connect with those in the spirit world. I call that the sacred triangle, me, the sitter, and the spirit. And
0: you just make this shift that I teach people how to do. Mm-hmm. And then how does information come to you? You've mentioned that you see things. Do you get yeah. thoughts in your head? Do you hear things? Do you smell things? Do you feel things? All, are, are all of your human senses... It's all of the above, all of the above. I see
1: images in my mind side, not out in the room, but I do get a sense if there's a spirit actually sitting in the chair and I can see them crossing their leg or whatever they're doing or making, I see mostly charades from the spirit world as if it's my hands doing the charades because I, I merge with that spirit so that we become as one. And sometimes I even speak in the first person, like, mom, I miss you so much, but you have to know I'm okay. And then I see the hands as if it's that person's hands in my body. Uh, I get physical symptoms of how they pass. So I become like a human pincushion and sometimes we'll go, ow, or, or oh, my heart's palpitating or, oh, i got pains in my head. It's momentary, but so evidential that I actually welcome it. I hear... Their words, I hear songs they put in my mind. I feel their personality because I become them for the while that we're together. So I can just tell you what I'm like at work, what I'm like with the family, what I'm like interacting with other people. And we're all different in those different situations. And then I just know things. So anybody listening who's done this work, you know, those are called the clairs, clairvoyance, clairsentience, clairaudience, all of those. It's the The goal is that perfect mix of all of it so that you just know because you've become this person for a few minutes. Mm
0: -hmm. And I know you channel... A, a group of spirit ent- entities or yes. spirit guides can you tell us a little bit about that what does it feel like do you yeah. know are you cognizant when they're speaking through you i've seen videos yes. of you doing this so is it like they're speaking through you and you know what they're saying or do you have to go back and watch a recording
1: both to know? i'm a conscious channel while it's happening i hear the words coming out of my mouth but my job as the channeler is to get out of the way and not filter what's happening. I feel when they step in, they've told me to call them Sanaya, which means a uh, multitude of things. It means flash of lightning, which is quite interesting considering how my stepdaughter passed. And it means uh, one worth knowing, which I love. And several other meanings but uh they're very high beings and they change from time to time who's talking through me or they'll talk as a group consciousness but people who've attended these sessions see them step in i feel them step into my energy field my aura. what does that feel like what it's is, a what do you mean? it's a ramping up of my energy i like it's a it's a, like they're trying to fit into me it's a but it's an energetic thing. And it's, it feels, then it feels blissful. It's fabulous. I love it. And I just have to get to the point where I say, I surrender my whole Suzanne story. You go ahead and use this body as your instrument. And the minute they say, good evening, they're off and running. They start talking. I have no idea what they're going to talk about. My hands, my gestures become more fluid. My, it's, it's, Such a wonderful experience, especially for those who attend. I'm so grateful because they feel the love that Sanaya comes with that's the deeper channeling sessions. But each morning I sit right here in this room and ask for a message that anybody who reads it this day on dailyway.org on my website will benefit from and sometimes i don't even have to ask i just sit down and i have my ipad now i used to write it by hand and now i have my ipad ready with an email to myself open and i just type the words as they come through and then i send it to myself and then post it online it's kind of like a a little automated system yet i don't have to go into that really expanded state they're right here all the time it's
0: just the intention do you have a message for me now So you turn your abilities on and off. It's not like you're walking around and you're walking into a restaurant and you're seeing all these spirits in the restaurant. Yeah. I feel
1: it's more turned off for me because my personality is such that I would want to be giving readings and messages to everybody all the time. Oh, you have a grandmother, maternal grandmother across the veil. Ooh, then I probably should give her a message, you know, and that's not healthy. So You know, even my weekly radio show, I have a policy of not doing readings on the air because I'd want to give one to everybody that comes on. And that's not also honoring the time, the short period of time that we have on a radio show. So those one-on-one readings, they're my favorite.
0: Yeah, I agree. They're really wonderful when you have somebody that you can... uh, you know really have a deep conversation and help them in ways that they don't they don't even know what they're looking for a lot of the time and yeah. and you can provide information to them so is there a message that you get routinely from spirit that would be especially applicable right now with what we're going through with the global pandemic you know the message is timeless
1: and every one of my daily messages that i post ends with the same phrase these days. It used to be sporadic, and now it's every day. It ends with, you are so very loved. And if we knew that, we wouldn't fear anything. If we knew that there really is no death, we wouldn't get so caught up in the fear-filled things that we do. I'm I'm just hopeful that more and more people will come to this realization, because I can look around me during this, this coronavirus time, and i Nothing rattles me anymore, maybe for a moment when when you get bad news, but knowing that this story that we're living out is exactly that, a temporary story, and there is this eternal aspect of us that's connected to everybody else at that level, you just quickly slip back into that knowingness from the experience of sitting in that state of awareness daily, and then peace becomes your ever-present reality. That's what I'm talking about, the contrast between how do I handle 9-11 Just, just so fear-filled and upset and distraught. And now today, I just would look at things and say, isn't that interesting? A lot of growth is going to result from this. That's my
0: reaction to tragedies these days. Me too, and there's benefits that are being realized and are to be realized, and yes. everything's always unfolding perfectly. Even if we're when we're in the middle of it, it feels horrific. That's right. Uh, same thing. I I laugh. I always say, stay in Switzerland. <laughs> you know, stay uh-huh. neutral. No, everything's yeah. yes, unfolding right.
1: perfectly. It's just stay that's in Switzerland. Right. So. It doesn't mean that we don't
0: suffer at all. I
1: mean, my, right. my baby dog passed on Christmas Day, and I cried, and I wanted off the planet. It's like really we chose to come here for this and then you just because we did choose to come here for the full spectrum of emotions and experiences not just the pleasant ones i know we as americans it's our inalienable right to be happy it says so in the constitution you know and but as humans not so we're here for the
0: party and that party has some ups and downs well that's how we create because when we know what we don't want, then that helps us create what we do want. Yep. So I think we have to have that, those opposites to know what, what we want. It helps us really get clear on what it is that we're, we're wanting to create. I know you do a lot of work with families, who, with parents especially, who've lost a child. Talk to us a little bit about that. Tell us about yeah. your work there. And, yeah. and how, so, does, how does being a medium help? them and and do you find that they're open for that and maybe like you it took something that dramatic for them to maybe explore their spiritual side of their life yeah my favorite organization is
1: helpingparentsheal.org because they encourage people to explore the possibility of an afterlife and they have um, mediums who come and speak to their groups and there are people in various stages of the journey after a child passes, and many of them are actually now smiling again. And when you first lose a child, you don't think you'll ever smile again. And they look at those others and they think, how did they get to that point instead of 20 years from now, still distraught, you know, and reading with a medium can change their life in an instant like that one with, with the medium that changed our lives. Did my grieving stop? no. But knowing that Susan is still here changed everything and allowed me to move forward with her instead of leaving her behind. And then you, you eventually um, learn to deal with the grief. But that's why readings for parents who have a childhood cross are my most sacred and my favorite kind, if you could say that. But they're also the most challenging because I know what these parents are going through but my favorite because of the healing potential to sit with a parent and watch them say oh my god that's my child you mean they're really still here i know what that feels like and the the kids come through so beautifully it's just amazing reading after reading to just to say your son is here and he passed from an overdose you have a daughter who crossed and she was in a car accident. And she's showing me this and this and this. It's just, this is what they hope for beyond hope. And to find out it's really true that their
0: hope was not for nothing. It's life changing. And I think so many people will say in a situation when someone's lost a loved one, they'll say, well, uh, you'll be reunited with them eventually when you go. But to give them the opportunity to be reunited with them while they're still alive. Yes, It's just such a gift. And then point out the signs that they've been sending
1: and to get them to watch for more of these signs. My favorite story ever that said, your son sends you owls. And the mom said, Nope. And I checked again. I said, well then watch for the owl. It's got to be significant. Not just to see an owl somewhere. The next week she opened her front door and an owl flew in flew up the stairs to her son's bedroom and stayed there for an hour until they had to get a broom and f- help it out the front oh door again gosh. that's a the story that's the son using the remote control of consciousness to move that bird
0: right in there mom i'm still here wow oh, what a great story <laughs> what a great story all right well how can people find you
1: Yeah, they can go to suzannegeesman.com. Please look me up on YouTube. I have a ton of great videos there with all kinds of stories and evidence and teaching from the guides. Uh, Dailyway.org takes you to the daily messages. Theawakenedway.org takes you also to my website to the basic teaching about the afterlife. And my weekly radio show, find me on Amazon. There was one other thing
0: I was gonna mention.
1: Oh, Facebook. I have a really wonderful Facebook community and so we enjoy that as well
0: and tell everybody about the classes you teach
1: yeah it is possible to learn to do this there are processes and systems and it's fun and fascinating and it's transformational for us as well it's not just about mediumship so all of that is on my website under learn with suzanne
0: and then is there anything in particular that you want to leave everybody you know any any thoughts that you want to leave with everybody that you want them to know about about the afterlife and about their loved ones who've passed and how they can contact them and do they have to go through a medium in order to no and that's what my
1: teaching so many of my students have no intention of becoming mediums they just want to learn to connect with their loved ones themselves and they can through these tools and My message is always talk to your loved ones. They hear you. But it's really funny when you get people talking about this, the ones who are still worried, what will people think? Everybody has a story of some experience when they couldn't explain it. And I just say, you are not crazy. Trust that. It's real. Keep talking to those who come through because eventually you're going to meet them across the veil and they're going to say, that was me. I
0: was talking to you and thank you for talking back. Exactly. Well Suzanne, thank you so much for uh, joining joining us this week. You you truly are extraordinary and I am so honored to know you and, and- Well I, I love your energy and you have helped me
1: physically you've helped my dog you've helped my husband so i love the back and forth of these exchanges of energy that's what this is all about this whole life isn't it the connections
0: i agree agree. absolutely so thanks so much everybody look up suzanne you'll you'll find some amazing things there all right till next time i'll see y'all next week bye thanks suzanne oh Julie, that's great thank you so much thanks for joining us